Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys Podcast, where the name is aspirational and where we are entering into another blockbuster science fiction cinematic universe. We are here to discuss the Time Traveler's Wife. For anybody watching the new HBO series, this episode will contain spoilers for the complete novel and the 2009 movie, so beware if you want to experience the new series fresh. I am Glenn. Scott is here. Scott, are you excited to get into a big new blockbuster franchise? Yeah, I don't feel like we spend enough time covering those. Exactly. Where are our priorities? So we're talking about the 2009 film adaptation of The Time Traveler's Wife, starring Eric Bana and Rachel McAdams. What do you think is the most important thing about adapting this story? I think because of the nature of this story, because a lot, more so in the novel than in this movie version, there's more of a lot in the novel than the movie version, we'll cover that, but Because so much of this relationship between Henry and Claire is between a man in his late 30s and a girl in her tweens, give or take, that is like really treacherous grounds to cover. And you really have to depict that very carefully in order for it not to just be super creepy. Yes, that is an aspect of the story that I didn't see as much in 2009 when the film originally came out and when I read the book. Uh, you just recently reread the book, is that right? Yeah, I reread the book before watching the movie, and that was what I was going to say, is that I think that's something that the novel does well and the movie doesn't really. In part because the movie just has so little of that relationship in there. The movie tries to sidestep that in the way that it depicts their relationship, yes. But the movie also has a scene later which basically explicitly makes real the worst possible interpretation of that relationship. Where adult Claire and adult Henry are talking to each other and Claire says, You tricked me. You forced your way into the heart and mind of a little girl. I never had any choice but to be in this relationship, which is an interpretation of the story that the novel tries very hard to disprove, and this movie apparently just leans right into, at least in that scene. The movie is sort of inconsistent in places, too. But in that scene in particular, they just like explicitly flat out say the worst possible interpretation of these events is exactly correct. I think in that scene, that particular line is presented as something that the character is saying because she's upset, as a way to hurt Henry, which again, is not an unproblematic decision. (laughs) To place that in a much larger context, I think that may be the biggest failing of this movie, is depicting the relationship between Henry and Claire. Because... Depicting that relationship, depicting the dynamic between them, depicting each of their attitudes toward the relationship, I think that's where this movie, well, I think that's one of the places where this movie version just fails. It starts in the very first scene in the library, 
where in the novel, he's like immediately into her and intrigued by her and attracted to her. And in the movie, he just looks really nervous and he looks like he finds her very off-putting. Like he's just like, whoa, what's going on here? I don't want anything to do with this. And it continues right through the story where there's a whole part where she's angry at him because he was gone for so long on one of his time travel trips when the whole point is that he has no control over the time travel trips. And in the book, she never really gets angry about that. She like laments it and is sorry about it and is annoyed by it sometimes, but she never blames him for it because she understands he has no control over it. And she understands that she's choosing to live with it because she wants to be with Henry. Whereas in the movie, she's like angry at him for being gone so long. And then, like I said, in that later scene, angry at him, like she had no choice but to be with him. She had no choice but to have to deal with this. Whereas in the book, it's explicitly a choice she makes. And it's very weird. It's a very strange dichotomy. Because they do all of the same things. Well, not all of the same things. They do most of the things that they do in the novel. They do the same things in the movie. But their attitudes are completely different. And there's these added scenes that are completely different. And so it's this weird sort of whiplash because like he looks very nervous and off put upon meeting her, but they still wind up sleeping together that night. He looks very uncomfortable whenever he's around her. And yet he still tells his mother when he travels back in time to see her that she makes him feel safe, which isn't something that he's shown in his performance at all up until that point. Claire has that whole scene where she says, you know, why would I want to have to deal with your time traveling? Why would anybody want to have to deal with this? I never had any choice because of you meddling in my childhood. And then like three scenes later, she's sitting in his lap saying, I wouldn't change a moment. I wouldn't change a thing. So there's that sort of conceptual whiplash that goes on between the way the movie is depicting things, but then the actions they're taking that are taken from the book. I mean, there are ways in which that's dramatically unsatisfying, but people are complicated, man. (laughs) People have all sorts of contradictory emotions at any given moment, especially in relationships. Especially in relationships that have difficulties because of inherent aspects of one or another person in a relationship. So, I get what you're saying, absolutely. And I think, for sure, the most important thing about this story is conveying the love story. The entire story revolves around that. And ultimately, I don't think this movie does that successfully, for a few reasons. This, I think, is supposed to come off like an epic, time-spanning, life-spanning love story expressed in small, intimate moments because that's all that Henry has as he travels between time frames, right? Especially in the movie, he only has a few minutes with Claire here and there at various points in her life, and then they finally get together. And then it's those moments when he's gone that stand out most to her. So there are those kind of poles to the story, but the most important part of conveying it in a film is the chemistry between the actors And I don't think in this movie, Eric Bana and Rachel McAdams really have that chemistry. 
I think Eric Bana does better with the child actors throughout the film than he does with his primary love interest. It's frustrating. I think his first scene with Alba might be his best scene in the movie. Yes, I agree. I don't think the acting is bad, but I think the way they're playing the characters doesn't fit with the characters that I want them to be playing based on what I read in the book, you know? Yeah, some of the characterization and storytelling choices aren't doing them any favors. Like in that first meeting when they first meet in the library where he seems like nervous and uncomfortable when he's supposed to be intrigued and attracted and she is like almost preternaturally calm and reassuring to him when in the book she's kind of freaking out like, holy shit, it's you. I think the intention behind that scene was to really emphasize the one point in their relationship or the one phase in their relationship where she has the advantage on him, where she knows more than he does. Yeah, but that's another instance where they add something in for the movie that directly contradicts something from the book, but then also include the thing from the book that directly contradicts it. <laughs> Like, she meets him, and one of the first things she says to him is, you look like you've had it rough. When in the book, one thing she says to him very early, right after they meet, is, you're so young. Because every other time she's seen him when he was time-traveling, he was much older than he is at the time that she first meets him. And then several scenes later, they have her say the line, you're so young which directly contradicts her earlier statement that you look like you've had it rough. I don't think it does, because you can have it rough a lot of ways. You can look rough and mean that he looks, like, depressed or stressed and not necessarily, like, bedraggled and old. I don't know, that sort of crosses over with another thing they do a lot in this movie, which is include moments from the book without giving them any context or emotional weight. It's like they're sort of speedrunning through highlights from the book, but they don't have time to build up to anything or explain anything. And the story doesn't have time to dwell on the characters enough to give these moments weight. It just has to include them quickly and move on to the next thing. Yes. Well, I mean, that is something that literally all of the side characters in the story suffer from greatly. Especially, I think, Henry's father. See, I was going to say especially Gomez. Yeah, yeah, the, f the friends too, yeah. Although, really, you could say especially Mrs. Kim. Who? Who is not in this movie at all. Yeah. That's another thing where it feels like all of the details of a lot of the characters are sort of filed off. You know, Gomez's socialism isn't anywhere in this movie. I forgot he was a socialist. Uh, wasn't Claire into, like, punk rock or something in the book? They were both huge into punk rock in the book. Yeah. There are two separate scenes in the book where they just start listing off punk bands, like a Reddit bro trying to give his bona fides. <laughs> also, Henry's Judaism is not in the movie at all. Completely gone. Like, the first scene in the movie is Henry's mother, who in the book is Jewish, but in the movie is singing him Jingle Bells. <laughs> Yeah, the only remnant of Henry's Judaism in this movie is that his parents are cast with actors you can read as Jewish if you know they're supposed to be. Like, Claire's family barely shows up. 
all of their character traits are gone except for the bare fact that her father hunts. The thing that you need for the bones of the story, yeah. Also, the entire relationship between Claire and Gomez is completely absent from the movie. Like, they include the scene where Gomez tells Claire, don't marry him, but they don't include any of the context that Gomez is in love with Claire and they slept together before. They don't include anything about Henry's life before he met Claire. There's nothing about his prior relationship with Ingrid. There's nothing about his heavy drinking. There's like one scene where he has a drink and she mentions that he doesn't drink in the future, but there's almost nothing about how heavily he drinks. Yeah, there are things like that that are barely alluded to. Like he tells his father he doesn't drink anymore and that's about it. But in addition to losing all of that character detail, like I was saying before, even the stuff they include, they don't include the proper context or give it any emotional weight. Like, for instance, they have the scene where he gets his hair cut before the wedding. Like, he goes to the barber and he asks the barber to cut his hair because he says his wife likes it short. But there was no scene before that where either of them commented on his hair. She never mentions his hair in the movie. They don't include anything about how she's used to seeing him with short hair because she's used to seeing him from the future. That context is completely absent. He just shows up at a barber shop and says she likes it short. The end. They have the scene where he buys a lotto ticket so that they win the lottery, but they omit the context that he did it so that she would have a bigger studio, that he could have literally done this at any point but just didn't bother because he didn't need it. And now he's doing it for her so that she can have a place to do her artwork. After he gets frostbite, they have Claire deliver the line, he needs to run. But they never explain that. That's the first time anyone's ever mentioned his need for running. They never explain how running calms him and helps him stay in the present. They never explain that when he winds up in random points in the past, he needs to be able to flee for his life. None of that is ever mentioned. They just include the fact that he needs to run, but they don't explain it. They don't give it any context. They don't include any detail that would make it matter to the viewer. I think his need to be able to get around can be inferred from all of the scenes that we see of him, you know, breaking into places and, you know, having to get around whenever he travels somewhere. That much, I think is fine. Well, the breaking into places is another place where I feel like the movie's need to zip through the story so quickly sort of fails it. Because how many times in the movie does he break into somewhere to steal clothes only to, like, time travel back home, like, minutes later? Oh, every time. Like, if he's only going to be there a few minutes, he doesn't need to do all the breaking and entering. The reason he has to do all the breaking and entering is because he's stranded there for hours, potentially days. But they don't have time to show him anywhere for any length of time in the movie. They need to end the scene and move on. Well, of course, he never knows how long he's going to be there. So he breaks into places and sometimes disappears right away. And then they mention the one time he was gone for two weeks is about all they have time for. Yeah, that happens off screen. Yeah. I don't know. It just feels like they do that throughout the movie. They they include a detail from the novel, but don't explain why it's important or give it any context or explain why the audience should care. 
like they have a scene toward the end of the movie where Claire is cooking dinner. But nowhere throughout the entirety of the film do they cover that Claire is a terrible cook. But now she has to learn how to cook because Henry used to do all the cooking. But now they know he's going to die soon. They just have, oh, here's a scene where she's making dinner. Let's move on. Well, they don't explain that Henry's been doing all the cooking, but when Claire first takes Henry to meet Gomez, he does say that Claire's a terrible cook. So there's your one line that we could get in the movie, and let's move on. Oh, well, I didn't even remember that. Yeah. I'm sorry, they don't deserve the zero credit I was giving them. They deserve at least a half a point. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, there are things like that where maybe you need to know the dots are there to connect them. Like, right before the lottery scene is the fight after he gets back from his two-week trip, where she's angry with him and has to leave the apartment because she has to go talk to someone that she's getting studio space from, and then he waits for her outside of this studio and takes her and shows her the lotto ticket so that she can have her own studio. Except they don't even... I mean, I guess you could, like, infer it if you're paying close attention, but... Yeah, they don't explicitly draw those lines. No. Maybe I'm just too wedded to the original novel to accept the changes they're making, but I feel like they make things explicit in ways that contradict the characterization from the novel, and then they just sort of skip over things that are made much more explicit in the novel. Like her complaining that this space is too small for me to do artwork in. That's not anything she would do. She wouldn't put that burden on Henry. She wouldn't blame Henry for that. She, like, acknowledges the situation and thinks about how the smallness of the space is affecting the artwork that she's making, but she doesn't, like, blame Henry for it. Yeah, I think that's an instance of inserting conflict for conflict's sake. But they don't even have time for conflict. It's one quick scene where she complains about it, and then Henry immediately solves the problem. Except they don't even explicate that he's solving the problem. That the reason he's doing that is to solve the problem. <laughs> I think that's a really important bit of characterization. That, you know, with all the traveling he does, he could have won the lotto years ago if he wanted to. But he didn't do that because he just wants to live his life as normally as he can manage, even with this time travel nonsense. But Claire needs a studio space. And so he goes outside of his usual pattern in order to give her the studio that she wants. And I mean, really, to buy a house in suburban Chicago, when how would someone who keeps flitting through time randomly hold down a job? You know? Well, that's... He can't hold down a job because he's always in 1983 or whatever, and she's an artist with rich parents. <laughs> well, that's something that they go into more detail in the book that I actually don't blame them. That's something that I think is completely fine to cut out, is the effect of Henry's time traveling at work. Because when he time travels, he leaves his clothes behind. So, like, his co-workers are walking through the bookshelves and find a pile of Henry's clothes. Mm. So they just think he's the weirdo that sometimes runs naked through the stacks. No, oh, when he gets back, he is. I didn't remember that that was actually addressed in the book. Yeah, there's there's a few seeds where his co-workers have a conversation about, like, you know, oh, I, I found Henry's clothes again. <laughs> Or, like, he's running late to some presentation they're supposed to do, and his co-worker is like, what's taking you so long? Do you have the cart of the books that we're supposed to be presenting? And he walks in, and Henry's buttoning up his shirt. 
And the coworker is like, okay, we know you're the weirdo that runs naked through the bookshelves sometimes, but you're still a good worker, and we don't mind that much, but for fuck's sake, we're supposed to be doing a presentation right now. <laughs> See, that's the sort of thing that could have lent some levity to the proceedings. I mean, I know we didn't have time for it in the movie, because we don't have time for a lot in the movie. But as it is, the funnest part of this movie, I think, is probably the wedding. I think the wedding scene comes off pretty well. You know, I really enjoy, even as little as Gomez gets to do in the movie, I enjoyed him kind of panicking when Henry disappeared, and then kind of sardonically noting that a Henry 20 years older or whatever suddenly showed up. I don't know. I think I'm just too hyper-focused on all of the stuff that the movie lacks. Mm-hmm. Like, in a way, maybe rereading the book before watching the movie was a mistake, because that's all I can see now is all of the stuff that's missing and all of the stuff that's subtly different. Like, they have one line of dialogue where Henry mentions taking a Valium to try to calm himself so he doesn't time travel. But they don't have anything else about the drug-seeking that he does in the novel of, like, testing out different drugs to try to find something that will affect his time traveling, of canvassing drug dealers to see what they have available, because he obviously can't get prescriptions for any of this stuff, of, like, researching new drugs that are available in the future and then trying to remember their ingredients and giving them to illicit drug manufacturers in the past to try to recreate them. Oh my god, I completely forgot that. Yeah. And the severe reactions that he has to these drugs, where Claire winds up calling his drug dealer and begging the drug dealer to stop selling him stuff. All of that gets condensed down to one line of dialogue where he takes a Valium. Yeah, well, yes. The edges are filed off rather aggressively. (laughs) I forgot about the drugs. Because, like I said, I read the book after we originally saw the movie when it came out in 2009. But that's another instance where the movie, in trying to rush through the story, it loses so much heart. Because the guy that Henry goes to to get his black market psychotropic meds, his primary business is selling black market meds to AIDS patients who can't get proper prescriptions. Because this is all happening in, like, the early to mid-90s when AIDS treatment was still very experimental and often difficult to come by. And there's the scene at the wedding where his friend, the drug manufacturer, recognizes that this Henry is from the future, and he asks him, Listen, I know you don't like to do this sort of thing, I know you don't like to tell people stuff, but can you just tell me, am I still alive where you come from? And there's that wonderful little scene between them where this guy is just so vulnerable and begging for reassurance, and Henry is able to give that to him. That character is completely gone, and that entire storyline is reduced to he takes a Valium once. The edges are filed off very, very aggressively. (laughs) The edges are filed off, but also the whole heart of the story feels like it's gone. You know? That is an impression that I got, too. And if you take off all of the edges and also take out the heart, what are you left with? It's like a bare framework of a movie. I may be pushing the metaphor a little too far, but it sort of works. It sort of fits. (laughs) Yeah, that was basically the conclusion that I came to as well. 
that the movie winds up feeling kind of bland. Mostly because, for me, the love story and the chemistry and, and the progression of the relationship kind of falls flat. But also because of even what I remembered about the side characters, about his father, about Gomez, about whatever. Everything feels kind of blah. Well, I mean, I think we've basically identified why that is. Because yeah. they took the original story... They wiped off all of the details that would take time to explain, and they also gutted it of any heart or emotional weight, both at the same time. And so what you're left with is just a series of events retold as quickly as they can because they're trying to cram in as many as they can within their limited runtime. I mean, we've talked about that in regards to other adaptations. We talked about that with Dune. We talked about that with The Hunger Games of including details from the book, including scenes from the book, but not taking the time to give them proper context, not taking the time to make the audience care about them, not taking the time to explain why the audience should care about them. You're just sort of speedrunning through the highlights of specific scenes, but you're skipping over the whole heart of the story. And in another callback to the Hunger Games movie, they leave Henry's disability out of the movie. Yes. When he gets frostbite and gets his feet amputated. Yeah. At least he still uses a wheelchair for part of the movie. They didn't completely, completely remove that. They mostly removed it. Yeah, but they say, like, his foot will heal, but he'll have to use a wheelchair for, what do they say, a few months? Ah, something like that. So the movie gives this impression, like, if he could just stick it out for a couple of months, he'll be okay. Whereas in the book, it basically feels like a death sentence. I mean, in the movie, even after he's injured, when he time travels after being injured, he still gets up and walks around after he travels. Yeah, he just, like, hops around on one foot. There's that scene where he travels forward to the night of his own death. Yeah. Where he's, like, looking in through the window as the whole family is gathered around his body. And there's that great shot of after he time travels away again of his handprint fogging the window and just fading away. I was just going to mention that. That was a great image. Well, the, uh, the note that I made on that is that in a competently constructed movie with engrossing characters and emotional weight, that image would have been really poignant. I think it still is poignant to an extent, but obviously, yes, in, in a better told story, it would be fantastic. There were parts of the movie that I did find genuinely emotional, but I think that's mostly leftover emotional from the book. I don't really credit the movie itself for generating those emotions. Like the last scene on the porch between Claire and Henry right before he dies, I did find that scene like genuinely emotionally moving. Yeah. Their performances in that scene, I thought, were pretty good, and the scene itself worked really well, but based solely on the movie, I don't think the characters or the story or the relationship are built properly that I would have had an emotional relationship to that scene if I wasn't bringing with it all of the emotional investment I have in the characters and the story and the relationship from the book, you know? Yeah, there are definite highlights. I think the very beginning of the movie, with adult Henry comforting himself at the scene of the accident where his mother dies, I think that came off very well. 
Again, I think Eric Bana did much better with the child actors than most anyone else in the movie. Everything with Alba, the kids that they got to play Alba at her two ages, both, I think, were very good. And the ending sequence, once Henry knows he's going to die, when, like, a sense of doom starts to hang over the movie, I thought that was compelling. I noticed, watching the movie this time, other than the accident at the beginning of the film and, like, the last act, I don't think anything else is set in winter. And I think that visual change, where suddenly, you know, he's traveling and it's snowing, and the trees are barren and all of this, I think that is a really good visual change that really conveys that shift in the story. Of course, because winter is the thing that kills him. That and hunting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that opening scene is good, but I think it's doing a lot of work to try to explain the story very quickly. Oh, well, sure. And I think it does a pretty good job of that, but it does feel kind of clunky in how much it's trying to get across so quickly. And I do kind of miss the impression that I recall from the book that Henry is drawn back to this moment so much that there are like 50 naked Henrys running around the edges of the scene. Like there's a Henry calling the ambulance. There's a Henry trying to get there. You know, there are just so many Henrys who keep coming. Well, they have the line in the movie that he travels to the same places that have emotional weight to him, that it's sort of like gravity attracting him to major events. Yeah. But they don't show that very much. Like, that's the only time they show him traveling to the accident. That's the only time they show him interacting with his own past self, when in the book there's several scenes of him sort of tutoring his younger self in time travel. Like, he teaches himself to pick locks. He teaches himself to pick pockets. None of that makes it into the movie. Even traveling back to see Claire is really only a handful of times. Like, not even a handful of times in the movie. Well, I think that gets into some of the um, power dynamics in their relationship. And I think maybe you don't want the viewer to dwell too much on a middle-aged guy hanging out with an eight-year-old girl. I suppose. That's really the part where it gets the most touchy, where you have to be the most careful how you do things. Yes. So that you don't make it the worst possible interpretation. Yeah. And I don't think the movie really succeeds there. And as much as we've talked about the love story not coming across quite as much, I don't think you can really have the scene where Claire turns 18 and suddenly they can bone down. Yeah, that it's just as well they left that out. Yes. Although, of all of the scenes that they cut out of the movie, they had to include the scene where he basically assaults her first kiss on her. That made the cut. Yeah, that was uncomfortable. And it's even worse in the movie than it is in the book, because, like, it's still kind of terrible in the book, but once she says that was my first kiss, his immediate reaction is, oh, shit, I'm sorry. Yeah. He never apologizes in the movie. He doesn't say anything in the movie. He just, like, approaches her and kisses her again. He doesn't even get permission for the redo. So, like, it's one of his worst moments in the book, and they make it even worse in the movie. 
But, like, they don't really include any of the more innocuous parts of their relationship. You know, where he's, like, helping her with her grade school homework, or where he helps her get revenge on the high school bully, or anything that would show their relationship as not incredibly, incredibly creepy and manipulative. Also, I think the girl they have playing young Claire, she isn't nearly as good as the girl playing Alba. She doesn't carry those scenes as well, I don't think. She's fine. Like the scene where she asks about his wife and she's upset because she's jealous of his wife because she wants to be the wife. I really don't feel like she carries the emotion of that scene. And I mean, I don't want to criticize this kid. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you are not a proper thespian. (laughs) But that scene has emotional weight it needs to carry on Claire's behalf. And I just don't think that she puts that across well enough. And it hampers the scene. I don't know, the whole structure of that part of the story is sort of lost. Because in the book, once they introduce Henry and Claire in modern times, the whole next section of the book sort of follows Claire's timeline of telling the story of her relationship with Henry when she was a kid. And a lot of that, like almost all of that, gets skipped over in the movie. The movie sticks almost exclusively to the modern story. Whereas the book has a whole section where it tells the story from Claire's perspective as a child of their meetings throughout her childhood. And the movie has like one or two scenes of that at various points, but doesn't really tell that story the way the novel does. Yeah, I understand wanting to have your whole story take place between the stars of the film, but it does kind of shortchange Claire's character a little bit. And it kind of shortchanges some of the agency that her character has or that you can give her character and that she really badly needs, given the premise. Well, that's also something that you lose in the transition from novel to film, because so much of that is conveyed by Claire's internal monologue. Yes. Her thoughts on the relationship, her opinions, her desires, so much of that is not you know, dialogue. And so that already would have been something they would need to adapt to make it something visible to the viewer of a film. But they don't. In fact, they do the exact opposite and give her a big emotional scene where she complains that she has no agency. That she hates all of this, that no one would like this, and she never had a choice in any of it. Of course, they also sort of subtly changed that scene to make Henry more of an asshole. Where in the book, Claire has six miscarriages. And finally, Henry goes and has a vasectomy because he's afraid she's going to die at some point if she just keeps having miscarriages. Yes. Where in the movie, they only show, I think, one or two. And then he gets the vasectomy and says, I won't have a child with the same problem that I have. I refuse. Mm-hmm. which is an entirely different motivation, which seems to serve no purpose other than just to make him more of an asshole. Like, it makes the whole thing more about him than about Claire, when the whole point of the story is that the story is about Claire, it's not about Henry. That's why the novel was called The Time Traveler's Wife. Yeah. That's why so much of it is from her perspective. That's why the whole first section of the book is her perspective from her childhood of the growing relationship with Henry. 
That's why so much of the book follows her chronology of events. But stuff like that, it seems small, but it shifts the focus away from her and onto him. It shifts his motivation away from her and onto him. I don't know. I have a lot of problems with this movie. I don't think it's a very good adaptation. I remember not liking it when we saw it in 2009, and I like it even less seeing it now. If I recall correctly, I liked it when we originally saw the film, and then I read the book and understood a lot of your thoughts, but still thought of it as, you know, fine. But rewatching it now after so long, Number one, I'm more attuned to uh, problematic relationship dynamics in film and other media than I was at the time, just on a personal level. And also, recalling the book, it really comes off worse than I thought it would, honestly. I mean, like I've said, there are highlights. But overall, the like emotional meat of the story is insufficient. And like we've said, the side characters, the subplots are just massacred. Yeah. I mean, they have the scene right before Henry dies where he has his little moment with Gomez and he tells Gomez, you've been a great friend. And the note that I made at that point was they didn't show that in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I think Gomez was in four or five scenes. Is there anything else you want to cover? I mean, there's more I could go into about various things they changed and why I don't like the changes, but I feel like we've already covered that ground. Yes. Yes, I agree. And so, we can move on to our next episode, which will be a review of the HBO series adapting the book, which hopefully can do better with some contours of the story, since obviously it's a six-episode series. It'll have a lot more time to deal with it than a movie, so here's hoping. I don't know that it'll have a lot about socialism and punk rock, but we'll see. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at NontoxicFanboys at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, get episodes early, and hear an exclusive monthly behind-the-scenes podcast where we talk about the making of the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. And you can find all of this info, plus every episode of the podcast and all of our other accounts like our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, and our Discord server, all listed at our website, nontoxicfanboys.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. I like that I I had my note, uh, this movie has big skipping through the highlights of the book energy when I didn't even remember a good portion of the highlights of the book, apparently.